Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He walked on the beach, stuck his toes in the cool waters of the Mediterranean. He sat down, watched the sunset in the distance. He had enjoyed a wonderful meal at uh, Falafels in Paradise, (laughs) Jimmy Buffett's new place. It just opened on the shores of Crete. And he pulled out the tattered letter, the letter that had commissioned him, the letter that had told him what his task was so many months, years ago. He can't remember. He's so exhausted, but it's been a good type of exhaustion. You know that kind when you've been working cattle or doing plumbing or, uh, well, probably not plumbing, but (laughs) a type of tired that also comes with a sense of well done. And Titus sat there with his toes in the ocean as it was making its way further and further up the shore with the tide coming in for the night. He had his boarding pass in his hand because he knew he would be departing Crete. And he knew that in the morning... Artemis, or Tychicus, when Paul wrote the letter, he wasn't sure which, but one of these guys would be showing up to relieve him. One of these men would show up on the morning ship, and Titus would board, and he would head off to Nicopolis, a fitting city to go to when you have done a good job. We've got a shoe named after Nicopolis. It's called Nike. From the Greek, it means victory city. And that's where Paul had decided he would winter. Paul, in his little elderly age, he was not terribly interested in traveling in the wintertime. And besides, whenever he traveled, he was detained because he was always in prison. And so he decided to winter in Nicopolis. And he wanted Titus to join him there. And Titus took this battered, tattered letter out once again and refreshed his memory of all Paul had asked him to do. And he refreshed his memory on the closing remarks from Paul because that was the part he was about to live out. You know, it's hard to believe that I've made this thing into nine weeks of sermons. But here we are. The ninth, the final week. And in many ways, we want to visit Titus in those last moments that he was on the island of Crete. That place where the first day he showed up, he found out he was grossly overdressed. He had to go to a local curio shop and and procure some shorts and some flip-flops so he could uh, have an impact on the indigenous population. And we want to focus on Titus and those last few instructions to him. You know, we are followers of Christ, and part of being followers of Christ is that we believe that this book is inspired, every bit of it. And that means even these closing remarks 
are instructive for us, the church today. This is the part of the book that if you've been reading this every day for nine weeks like I asked you to, you've read this time and time again, and this is the part that you kind of just, done, another day, over, awesome. And you probably skim some names because there's some weird ones, Artemis and Tychicus and Nicopolis and Zenus. He's a lawyer. I mean, nobody pays attention to him. And Apollos. And you just were happy to get through it. And then you might have missed some instruction here. You might have missed some nuggets. You might have missed some pearls from Paul where we're able to get kind of a a feel on the early church. Now, I've always thought it'd be fun to go back as long as I've got a time machine and can return. Because the ancient world was a rough place. I would be old in the ancient world. The ancient world was a difficult place, but I've always thought, what would it be like? And that's why I love to start sermons out by using my imagination and just picturing what was it like for Titus as he sat there, as he contemplated, as he wondered. You know, these are discussions that I look forward to having with these guys in heaven, just kicking back around a campfire someplace, chatting. And it's these words that we take up today, Paul's, according to my Bible, final remarks. This is just simply a closing. It's a traditional closing of an ancient letter. This is how they close them out instead of saying sincerely or, you know, those kind of things. Uh, This is how they close them out. And Paul always ended with grace be with you all. Uh, But he starts out in verse 12 by saying this. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me, Send you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. You know, these words remind us that uh, this was written to a real life person by another real life person. These weren't just words that dropped up out of heaven and were uh, disembodied in some strange way. But this was a letter written to a beloved son in the faith. And Paul longed to see him again. And Paul wanted to spend time with Titus. And Paul wanted to hear about the work in Crete. And text messaging just wasn't very, very uh, reliable. You know, iPhones hadn't come along yet. And so he had to visit face to face. And if he occasionally had the opportunity to find a piece of parchment, uh, a scribe, somebody could write something down, then you could try to get a letter to somebody. And Paul had managed to get this letter to Titus, and Titus is now anticipating leaving Crete. And there's several words for us in this passage. And one that I want you to to grab hold of today is that you and I are part of a larger movement. You and I are part of a larger movement. When you read these, you think, oh, this is like a travel itinerary. Big whoop. But notice what Paul is doing. He is taking care of logistics. 
He's getting people moved from here to there. He's having somebody relieve Titus and Titus coming to Paul so he can hear about the work in Crete, so he can spend time building up Titus because doggone it, trying to get people on Las Vegas in Hawaii to follow Jesus is hard. And so Titus needs a little bit of a break. And you see that Paul is like this master strategist who's busy moving around the pieces, the people, the workers, the laborers. And this is a movement in Paul's mind. It's not a building. You know, Europe is full of buildings, full of churches. Vast majority of them are no longer a movement. They are now museums. And one of the tendencies in churches, one of the the tensions in a church is to honor the past so much that you forget the future. And there needs to be honoring of the past, clearly. But if we become a museum, we'll forget the movement. And Paul is saying to these young this young man of his, this is a movement you're a part of. And I just want you to briefly think about this movement because it is a powerful movement. In 300 years from the time of this letter, half of the Roman Empire will name the name of Christ as Savior. Half of the Roman Empire, 60 million people. Titus got the work done. Titus found good leaders. He instilled good doctrine in them. And the church of Crete did good works that made the watching world attracted to the gospel. It worked. In just 300 short years, half of the Roman Empire, which used to throw Christians to the lions and the tigers and the bears, oh my, is now claiming Christ. You know, as Americans, we often uh, get this myopic view of the Christian faith. And all we hear about is these horrible things that are all true. You know, like 4,000 churches every year close their doors in America. And only 1,000 churches open their doors every year in America. And so there's a 3,000 church net loss in America. And we hear all these discouraging statistics. But I want to encourage you because we have a tendency to think, oh gosh, it's fading away. It's all dying out. The movement is almost, it's, it's in the remnant stages. But did you know According to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, did you know that Christianity is the fastest-growing religion in the world? And the vast majority of that growth is in the Southern Hemisphere. White people, you will be a minority in heaven. And the vast majority of growth is in the Southern Hemisphere. Today, 32% of the world's population would claim Christ as Savior. And there are five hotspots in the world right now that the gospel is just going gangbusters in. China, India, Indonesia, Brazil, and Nigeria. Latin America and China, it is estimated that 30,000 people a day are saved. 30,000 people in Latin America and China come to Christ every single day. For some aha moments, 
This survey that they began looked at stats in 1970, and it projects to what it could look like in 2020 in these different continents. So in Africa, in 1970, there were 18.8 million Christians, and it is estimated by 2020, there will be 226.2 million Christians. How many people live in the U.S.? In Latin America, in 1970, there were 12.8 million Christians. It is estimated by 2020, there will be 203.1 million Christians. In Asia, in 1970, there were only 9.3 million Christians. It is estimated by 2020, there will be 165.6 million Christians. You and I are part of this great Movement. And this great movement that Titus was a part of, that Artemis, that Tychicus, that Apollos, that Zenus, that they are all part of, you and I are a part of it. And it's just awesome to see God's kingdom breaking forth in this world. The interesting thing about this passage is just how ordinary it is. It's Paul making travel arrangements. It's, it's Paul just kind of wrapping things up in his letter. And it's so ordinary. Do you ever feel ordinary, though? You ever feel, I'm nothing special. <laughs> Sometimes we feel so ordinary. We talk ourselves out of teaching Sunday school or helping as a greeter or helping in communion or or the praise band or singing in the women's ensemble. We, we tend to talk ourselves down out of those things because we're like, ah, I'm just ordinary. Nothing special about me. Do you know this passage is full of ordinary? Artemis, this is where the only part in the Bible he's mentioned. We know nothing about him. Tychicus, we know a little bit more. We know from Acts that he was a, a, a traveling companion of Paul's on his third missionary journey. Zenos, all we know is he's a lawyer. From this passage, Apollos, we know that he traveled around and he was an evangelist, but they're just ordinary folks that we know very little about. They faded away in history long ago. If we didn't have this letter, if we didn't have parts of the New Testament, we would know nothing about them. In fact, Titus, his job was to find good leaders in Crete. None of them ever get a write-up. None of them. But he succeeded You and I are ordinary people. Very few people, very few of us will ever make a big splash. You know, there's a young man named Jim Elliott, and Jim Elliott was a missionary. And he and his wife, Elizabeth, felt God's call to go to Ecuador to an unreached people group, the Aka Indians. And so they went to the Aka Indians, and they were a primitive uh, tribe and and the way they made contact with this tribe was they would fly this plane over them and they would speak the Aka Indian language over a loudspeaker. If you're a primitive Stone Age tribe, freak you out a little bit. And then they figured out a way that they could lower a basket and they could fly the plane in such a way that the basket would stay relatively stationary. And they were offering gifts to the Aka Indians and the Indians would grab them. And they they got the sense that the Aka Indians were nice people and that they could make contact with them. And so their plane, their, their pilot was insane. He could just do things with this little plane. He landed in the jungle 
And these four men made contact with the Aka Indians on January 8th, 1958. That day, they were killed by warriors from the Aka Indian tribe. It's such a tragedy that these young men, these young missionaries who were so passionate about reaching people for Christ would lose their lives so early in this work in Ecuador. Jim Elliott, uh, he has a famous quote um, that's such a powerful quote, one of my favorite quotes. He said this, He is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain that which he cannot lose. And Jim Elliott, when he wrote that, was saying that my life is forfeit for the gospel. My life, giving my life so that people might know Christ is worth it. And he lived it out. And his wife, Elizabeth, she she amazingly, by the grace of God, stayed in Ecuador. And she reached out to the Aka Indians. And over the course of time, she brought that tribe to Christ, including many of the warriors who killed her own husband. Tell me, what religion does that? Jim is famous. He was, had a write-up in Time magazine. He, he's, he's a well-known, celebrated missionary, but you probably don't know anything about his older brother, Bert. Uh, Bert was at Multnomah University with his wife, Colleen, in 1949, and they both sensed God's call on their lives. They sensed that God was calling them to Peru. And save for a couple of furloughs back in the States, they've spent their entire adult lives in Peru. They're now in their 80s. And Bert and Colleen have planted 170 churches in Peru. Now, Bert's not celebrated, and he's, he's not a celebrity, and nobody knows him. But at Randy Alcorn, talking about Bert, he, he asked him about his brother Jim. And Bert said, my brother Jim was like a spectacular meteorite streaking through the sky. But Randy Alcorn, he compared Bert and Colleen to those Faint, distant stars that rise every night faithfully. You know, the church needs some streaking meteorites. Don't, don't take that out of context. <laughs> it needs some streaking meteorites. But it needs faithful, faint stars. The vast majority of us are going to be those faithful, faint stars. We're going to be husbands and fathers and wives and mothers. We're going to be accountants and healthcare workers. We're going to be business people and ranchers and farmers. But through your ordinary, everyday life, you're part of a movement. You can pray. You can share your faith. You can be an example, a model of person who's doing good works to those around you and make the gospel attractive for them. The vast majority of this movement has been done on the backs of the faithful faint stars. Very few throughout the history of Christendom have made the history books. 
vast majority have just been faithful in their calling. The way you do this is in your calling. The way that you you move forward the gospel, the way you do this is in your calling. You see this here in this passage. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. You know, that passage makes me a little nervous about unproductive lives. It's like Paul thinks you can waste your life. And sometimes when we're ordinary, we think we waste our life. But I've got this video that I want to share with you this morning that I hope will illustrate just how ordinary is important. This is a video that um, is called The Cog, and it's a commercial. And this video, none of it is computer graphics. None of it is computer generated. It's actually two one-minute clips. So it's two minutes long, but it's two one-minute clips. It took them 600 takes to get this right. It took meticulous planning for months. And the crazy thing about filming it is that the smallest piece of dust or a change in the humidity could offset the reaction of any of the things that you're going to see. 600 takes. It was actually a commercial for Honda in the United Kingdom. I want you to see this video. Isn't it nice when things just work? You might be a cog. You might be a windshield wiper. You might be a drop of oil or a spray of water. 
but you're all necessary. You're all critical. You are all important in the kingdom, in the kingdom work. Every follower of Jesus Christ is important in the work of the kingdom. You know, one of the things that we see in this passage is Paul exhorting Titus to tell the people to learn some things. Did you see what he said? Devote yourselves. The word devote is this idea of fixing your eyes on something. To devote yourselves to doing good. Uh, Too many times the church is known for things other than doing good, isn't it? If you go outside these walls and you find somebody and you ask them, hey, what do you think of Christians? What do you think of church? What do you think of evangelicals? I mean, we've got a pretty bum rap in the U.S. Many people would say, oh, they're intolerant. They're hypocritical. They're homophobic. And it's sad because, yes, there is a time to be prophetic. I mean, the culture that Paul and Titus, that the early church was encountering, was just the epitome of sinful. But Paul, again and again in this short letter, six times says the church should be known for good works. Now, the reason we should be known for good works is not because that's what gets you saved. You're not a Mormon. You're not a Muslim. They believe that good works is what gives them good standing with God. You already have that through faith in Christ and his completed work on the cross. But because of what he's done, in response to his goodness, you are compelled, you are hemmed in, as Paul says, to do good, to do good works. You do this out of response because it's just overwhelming when you look at who you used to be and that God would love you and forgive you and give you a start and give you a new name even. Do you respond with good works? And many people think, you know, as Christians, we shouldn't be worried about the world thinks of us. And I'd have to say, you're wrong. The scriptures, Paul says, do good works so that the gospel of our savior is attractive we should do good works because we want to respond to god's goodness to us but we also do do good works because of the effect it has on the culture just look at the ebola crisis do you know who's been the frontline responders to that christian missionary doctors And that's where the church has always been, at the front lines of doing good. One way to put this, the way that I regularly talk about this in our church, is that the church is a place to create a counterculture for the common good. That we concern ourselves with the common good of our community. And I've got to say, I love being in a small town because when I lived in Denver, I didn't know how to do that. How do you create a common good when there's 300,000 people within a 10-mile radius of your church? And yes, it's exciting to have a church of 2,000 people, but no, you're not having much impact on the greater community. In Ray, you can have a church of 200 folks, and you've got 10% of the community coming. You can actually start to dream, how could we have an impact How could we impact this place for good? 
We serve. We do good works. We love our neighbors. We pray. We get involved. And we need to be those people that are not known for, oh, they're against this and they're against that and blah, 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 blah. We need to be the people that the scriptures say we would be known by. Those are the folks who love their neighbor. We need the culture that says, you want these people in your neighborhood. They do good. They love others. This place, our community would, be, would lack so much if you took them out. That's the kind of church we want to be. That's the kind of people we're called to be. Paul says, devote yourself to doing good. It's interesting because he goes on and he says that we can waste our lives. You can live an unproductive life. The Greek literally means, and some of you might in your translation say unfruitful. It just means useless or unproductive. And, and not many people like to get to the end of their days and go, well, that was unproductive. Well, that was useless. I don't know of anybody who wants that on their deathbed. Thinks, what was I doing? And I don't think any of you want to be that guy, that gal. None of us want to live an unproductive life. So why does it happen so often? Why so often do we lose our way in what matters most? Why so often do we forget to keep the main thing, the main thing? What's the main thing? Loving Christ, loving others. Nothing else matters. And why do we forget this? I think one is we get distracted. That was a powerful commercial for Honda. Everybody wants to buy a Honda now. Just think of all the commercials you watch every day. It is easy to get distracted. Just think of all the noise and interruptions and stuff that you regularly let into your life. And we get distracted by good things. We get distracted by careers. We get distracted by eating. We get distracted by friends. We get distracted by family. We get distracted by making money, by being secure, by looking to retirement, by being retired, by thinking we're too old, by thinking we're too young. We get distracted. We, we forget that We need to devote ourselves to prayer and to service and to community and deep, transformative relationships. Sometimes we're not distracted. We just can get lazy. Sometimes we can just get so lazy that, uh, you know, after you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, it becomes, it becomes blah, boring, just, you know, hard to discipline ourselves uh, to the practices of godliness, to sitting and reading our scriptures, to praying, to investing intentionally in the lives of people around us, going to church, serving, loving others. It becomes easy to get lazy. And sometimes we just get plain old selfish, as old as Cain and Abel. We get selfish and we focus 
on ourselves. We take our focus off the cross and we look at just us and we start to live this small, puny life. Because it's all about me. It's all about you. We forget that we are part of this great movement that spans 2,000 years and tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people. We get caught up in how our 401k is doing and how much we owe Uncle Sam and how bad the government's doing stuff. And Really? That's what takes our eyes off of doing good? Decided on a new policy for myself. Learned it from a pastor friend. I think it applies to all of life, but it'll apply to me for sure. Whenever we want to criticize something, I think we need to come up with a solution. I think when we criticize someone or something or a system, instead of just sitting there and criticizing, because that's easy to take shots at stuff, isn't it? We don't have a skin in the game. Just What if you instead invested that energy into coming up with a solution? world would be a different place. The world's got plenty of whiners. Doesn't have enough folks creatively solving issues. That goes for the church. That goes for our individual lives. One last thing that Paul says, like I pointed out, he ends with grace be with you all. And grace began this letter and it ends this letter. And grace is what is at the heartbeat, the core of the gospel. It makes me think, what are places in society that people experience grace? The workplace? School? Hospital? Government? Sports? Where's grace? See, our culture has grabbed this idea called tolerance. And tolerance is this ugly counterfeit for grace. We're not called to tolerate people. We're called to be gracious people. We're called to be dispensers of God's grace in this world. I mean, that's what this movement is all about. That's what those good works is all about. That's what Titus was getting the good leaders for, teaching the good doctrine to, so that they could go out and be grace dispensers to Crete. And that's what won over half of the Roman world. And that's what's winning the day in the Southern Hemisphere is Christians doing gracious acts in the name of Christ. Don't waste your life. Don't be unproductive. Or the harsher word, don't be useless. You see, ordinary people advance God's kingdom by doing good and living intentionally, knowing they are part of the most significant movement in human history. In a few weeks, 
we're going to gather together in that room over there right after church. And we're going to talk about what we sense is God's dream for this church. And if you've been coming around for a while, you know that we've purchased land up on a hill and we've got a sign that says future home of First Christian Church. And by the way, that could be much in the future. We don't have a clue. We'd love it to be in the near future. It might not be as near as some would like or hope or wish for. But with our resources and what God has blessed us with, the building committee and the elders were seeking to be faithful. And we've got an architect and he's got some drawings. And we're going to share those with you, uh, hopefully, is the plan. We're still waffling a little bit because we don't know how much it's going to cost. And we know that that's the first question everybody asks, especially accountants. Dreamers, not so much. And at the very least, we're going to get together, and I want to walk you through just the timeline that we have walked to get where we're at today. I think you'll be astounded. I think you'll be shocked that that movement is alive and well here. I hope you're not shocked. I hope you're actually got your arms, your sleeves rolled up, your arms rolled up, because that would hurt. Your sleeves rolled up, and you are knee-deep and elbow-deep in this movement of God. The cool thing is, I'm absolutely convinced that with or without a building, this movement goes forward. With or without you and I, this movement goes forward. I've watched faithful men and women of Christ pass away from cancer and other horrible diseases, but the movement goes on. And that's what we end Titus with. Titus took a vacation in Nicopolis, and the movement went on. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all of us ordinary folk. Thank you that it takes great, that it brings you great pleasure to use us. To just take the ordinary everyday actions and activities of our lives and lay on top of that a spiritual reality where we can impact people for eternity by how we treat them, by how we care for them, by how we pray for them. And I pray, Lord, as we look forward to Easter Sunday, you would impress upon each of us that we would be bold in our ordinary everyday life to invite friends who we are investing our lives in. Holy Spirit, Give us just a dose of the boldness of the persecuted church. May our lives count because we are busying ourselves, not with critiques, not with judgment, but with good works. Holy Spirit, make it so. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Be a good cog in the wheel.
of the movement of Christ. Amen.